spoken, and we can hardly imagine them, but we ask that you would use your word today to help us understand your kingdom better. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. When I was a little kid, I used to watch the Roadrunner cartoon. I don't know if you remember that. You know, where the coyote would always try to catch the Roadrunner by doing something stupid, like strapping a rocket to his back or something like that. And he would always end up, you know, smashing into a a cliff or falling off something, and then he'd die, right? And when he died, this transparent little wispy soul would float up to heaven playing a harp. Remember that? That's the image most people have of heaven. Right, this ethereal place where angels float around all day long on clouds, playing harps and singing all day long forever and ever. Sort of an endless church service in the sky. And you never get let out for lunch. Now, I don't know about you, but the word that comes to mind when I hear that is what? Boring. Exactly. No wonder most people don't want to go to church. Because their image is that God doesn't want you to have any fun down here so you can die and be bored forever up there. Count me in, man. This fall we've been talking about the kingdom of God. How do we participate with Jesus in fulfilling his kingdom prayer that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? So if that's the goal, to make up there come down here, well then what is up there all about? So we know the goal. And the good news is it is not about harps and angels endlessly singing. Because if that's heaven, some people would probably choose hell because at least there might be some fun people there. But that's not heaven. According to what we just read, there are some really exciting things going on in heaven. And the first is this. Heaven is a real physical place, not some ethereal destination. The Bible describes heaven as a very material place. Gold, jewels, gates, streets. Now, a lot of this language is figurative. I don't know if there's literally gold in heaven. But the main point is that heaven is a real physical place, not a bunch of angels floating on clouds. You can think of it this way. It's sort of like the difference between angel food cake and chocolate torch. Angel food cake is this light, airy little wisp of a dessert that doesn't fill you up, very unsatisfying, right? And we name it angel food cake because that's our image of heaven, unsubstantial. But a chocolate tort, I mean, it's dense, it's rich, it's thick. And which would you rather have? Is that even a choice? Chocolate tort, right? And I know some of you sick souls will say, no, I like angel food cake. That's why you need to come to church to be enlightened. (laughs) I've done that for you. Heaven is a chocolate torch. It's dense. It's physical. In heaven, matter matters. It's described as the new earth. It's earth only completely renewed and purged of all the junk. You see, heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. It's a renewed earth. In the passage, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. He does not say, I am making all new things. Heaven is a renewed earth, and it's a physical place, and we are physical there, too. We're not disembodied souls floating around on clouds. The idea that our soul goes to heaven when we die is not in the Bible. That's Greek. It's Plato. It's not Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes a long argument how how we are raised from the dead in the body just like Jesus was. 
And just like Jesus, somehow we will be recognizable as us. This passage says that the nations are present in heaven. And the Greek word there is ethnon, word from which we get ethnic. In heaven, we'll have our ears, our eyes, even our ethnicity, and the best of our personalities without all the junk. Now, some of you right now might be thinking, oh, man, I have to have my body in heaven. Oh, man, I better lose some weight or I'm going to lug this spare tire into eternity, right? (laughs) Calm down. The Bible tells us that we get a new perfect body. We'll never get sick, never grow old, never get hurt, never die. I might even get my hair back. It's going to be great. (laughs) I like to think of it as, in heaven, I'll have the body I always wanted to have but never got around to it. So if you're white here, you'll be white there. If you're Chinese here, you'll be Chinese there. If you play the guitar here, you'll play the guitar there. Only better. And if you don't like to play the harp, you don't have to. The only people playing harps in heaven are people who play harps here. I suppose you could take a lesson, but if you wanted to. Heaven is a real physical place, and we get to be real physical people. Second thing that's exciting about heaven is it's a city. According to the Bible, the human race started in a garden, but we end in a city. You know why I think that is? Because heaven is a place where human activity is valued. And that's what cities are, a place of a lot of activity. Sports arenas, rock concerts, art galleries, cool restaurants. Now, if you don't like cities, don't worry. I'm sure there's some countryside too. But figuratively, what this is getting at is that heaven is a place with a lot of activity. It's not boring. It even says we get to reign with Jesus, whatever that means. I don't don't think it means that we get our own solar system to mess around with. That could be dangerous. But it does mean there's a lot for us to do. Heaven is not boring. There's activity. The third thing that excites me about heaven is it's relational. In this passage, heaven is also described as a bride. Jesus, in his parables, describes heaven as a wedding banquet. Those are relational images. Heaven is a place where we get to be in perfect relationship with God and with each other. In other words, it's a place of ultimate reconciliation. That's why there's no temple. Because the temple represented God's presence on earth. And in heaven, you don't need a temple because God's right there. In fact, it even says that God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. I love that image. In heaven, God is so close that his very hand will touch our face. That's how close we'll be to him. That's how close we'll be to each other. Heaven is a physical place. It's filled with activity. And it's relational. In other words, heaven is a place of reconciliation between us and God and each other. Restoration of this earth and of us, of who we were always meant to be, and rejoicing. The three R's of the kingdom I've been telling you about all fall. Heaven is the kingdom of God in its most absolute form. And not just up there someday, but we get glimpses of that kingdom right here on earth. Jesus said, the kingdom is in your midst. What that means is that earth is heaven penetrated. When we experience closeness with God, when we have whole and right relationships, when there's reconciliation, restoration, and rejoicing, that's the kingdom of God breaking into this world. Earth is heaven penetrated. So some of you right now might be thinking, okay, that sounds all right. Heaven sounds kind of cool. I can wait still, but it sounds cool. 
But what's that got to do with me right here, right now? I mean, I got my own problems. I got my own stuff right here on earth. What good is heaven? what, What does heaven, what difference does heaven make to me right here, right now? Let me give you a couple suggestions. How heaven affects our lives on earth. The first is this. I think heaven changes our priorities to kingdom priorities. If this is our ultimate destination, well, wouldn't that change the way that we live our lives? Because in light of this, in light of eternity, what difference do the things make that we really worry about? You know, job promotions or demotions, social prestige. Oh, who cares? Right? If this is where we're going, are those the things that we should be investing in? Heaven forces us to ask the question, what on this earth is going to survive up there? Let me invest in that. Because if all we take into heaven is our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and the personality of Jesus, that part of our personality that's like him, well, then wouldn't that mean that we should get to know God better and invest in other people and cooperate with the Holy Spirit of Jesus inside of us to become more like him? Right? I mean, you don't want to just have 5% of your personality be like Jesus when you die. I guess that means only 5% of your personality goes to heaven. Think of it like this way. It's sort of like a trip to the store. You know how in some stores like Target, they barcode everything? So if you try to walk out of the store without paying, this alarm goes off and you have to give it back? That's kind of like heaven. The only things you get to take out of this world are things that have the kingdom barcode on them. Your relationship with God, other people, and the character of Jesus. So let me ask you this question right here, right now. How much in your shopping bag has the kingdom barcode on it? Because everything else you're going to have to leave behind. And that's what I find so inspiring about some of the stories I've told you this fall. Because whether it's dancing with prisoners in Rwanda or doing some simple act of service that points to Jesus, those things help us know God better, build relationships, and develop the character of Christ in us. They fill our shopping bags full of things with the kingdom barcode. Heaven changes our priorities. Second way heaven changes how we live on earth is it gives us hope in hard times. When I was a kid, I watched Star Trek, the old series, and I'd always worry that one of the main characters was going to die. I was a little kid, and I'd always get kind of panicked until I learned the red shirt principle. Only people in red shirts die on Star Trek. And the main characters never wore a red shirt. And once I figured that out, I could kind of relax as the show was going on because I knew the end. That helped me get through the middle. Well, heaven is the ultimate red shirt principle. We can endure the middle because we know the end. And it's good. Heaven changes our priorities. It comforts us. And most importantly, heaven shows us that our lives are redeemable. In this passage, it says that the foundations for heaven are carved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And that sounds pretty good when you read over it. That sounds like the right 24 people to be the foundations of heaven. Until you think about it. The 12 tribes of Israel? Think about some of those stories in the Old Testament. Rape, incest, murder, fratricide. That's the foundation for heaven? It's the same with the 12 disciples. I mean, they're always messing up. Five of the 12 don't seem to do anything at all. Most of us can't remember the whole 12 disciples' names. I mean, when was the last time you thought about Thaddeus? Anyone had a Thaddeus thought this week? Didn't think so, right? And that's the foundation for heaven? 
our flawed ancestors and these incompetent, anonymous apostles, they're the pillars upon which heaven is built? Come on. Can we get a better foundation than that? You know what that tells me? That God takes all the flawed, rotten junk of our lives and he fashions heaven out of it. It's the second R of the kingdom, restoration. Your life is restorable. Whatever sins you've done, whatever has made a wreck of your life, it is restorable. Better even yet, it's the stuff out of which a heaven can be made. It's sort of like a coupon. You take a coupon to the store and you get something valuable, you get a discount, you get something for free. And when you exchange that coupon, what is it called? It's called redeeming the coupon. That's what redemption means, to exchange something useless, like a piece of paper, for something useful. And that's what God does with our lives. He redeems them. He pulls good out of them, no matter what messes we're in. Now, that doesn't mean that if we sin, that there aren't consequences to be paid. Of course there are. It's interesting to me that we never actually get to go back to the Garden of Eden. Some things that are lost are lost forever. But God God doesn't rewrite history, but what he does is he redeems it. He pulls something good out of it. A good friend of mine was dating a woman named Allison, but he was bothered by the fact that she'd had a lot of other relationships before him, and some of those had been sexual. And and he'd never dated anyone but her, and this just drove him crazy. It made him feel insecure and just kind of nuts. And so, to even the score, he went out and he slept with another woman, which for some reason he thought would help. It didn't, go figure. And so she broke up with him, moved away, and married someone else down the road. He was devastated. He felt guilty. He felt embarrassed. And he kept saying, I just wish I could erase it all. I wish I could go back and just undo everything. And I said, listen, God doesn't rewrite history. He redeems it. He'll use this for good. Well, three years later, he started dating another woman, also named Allison. Allison 2.0. And Allison 2.0 had never dated anybody else but him. So now the shoe was on the other foot. And he was terrified that when she found out, she would judge him as harshly as he had judged Allison 1.0. And he kept saying to me, I just wish I could go back and undo all of this. And I said, you can't. God doesn't rewrite history. You are stuck with your past. You're stuck with the consequences of your sin. But God does redeem it. He'll use it for good. Tell her. See what she says. So he told her all about his past, and and she had this great response. She said, well, you should not have done that. That was dumb. (laughs) But what's that got to do with us? I mean, you're sorry for it. God forgives you. So do I. And you're not going to do it again, because if you do, I'll kill you. (laughs) And I love you. That opened up all kinds of new dimensions of who God was in his heart. Having been forgiven, he became a more forgiving person, less judgmental. And for the first time in his entire life, he actually began to believe in his heart, not just his head, that God truly loved him and because of Jesus, truly forgave him, no matter what he'd done. They ended up getting married. And one of the nicknames he calls her is Christmas. Because that's what Christmas is. It's God coming to us in human form. And that's what she was for him. The grace of God revealed in a human person. And even the fact that she had the same name as the first girlfriend was evidence to him that God was redeeming his life when he had made a mess of it. God never undoes the disasters we create, which is a good enough reason not to create them. But if we do, he redeems them and he restores us. 
The ultimate example is Jesus on the cross. When our sin put him there, God used that very sinful moment to purchase our forgiveness through his death. That's what God does. He takes the rough, the rugged, the ugly stuff of life, and he makes it new for those of us who know Jesus. Our God is a God who can grab onto the pit of hell itself and squeeze his heaven out of it. I don't care what sins you've sinned, what mistakes you've made, what disasters have happened to you. He will reconcile you to himself and to everyone else. He will restore you and he will make you rejoice in him. And he will not stop until you are the person he created you to be. And he will not stop until this old world is as perfect and as pure and as holy as he first imagined it way back in Genesis 1. The devil will not have the last word in your life or in this world. We are glory bound. As an English major, I read a lot of poems. And Robert Frost wrote a poem about the end of the world that said, Some say the world will end in fire, some say ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire, but ice is also great and would suffice. Wow, deep, man. Thanks, Robert. T.S. Eliot put it this way, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not in a bang, but in a whimper. Wow, profound. They were both wrong. They both got it wrong. You see, I've read the last word of the last sentence of the last book of the Bible, and I know how this story ends. The devil loses, if you want to know. I'll spoil the ending for you. You see, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not in a bang, not in a whimper, not in fire, not in ice, but when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Alleluia. And even though they were Presbyterian, all of God's people said... Lord Jesus, thank you so much for that great promise that our lives, all of our lives, and all of this world is redeemable and restorable, and you will not stop until it's done. Lord, help us to hang on to that promise and let it comfort us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.